eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, James Andrew Miller, best-selling author of books on CAA, ESPN, and Saturday Night Live. He is here to talk about his latest book, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. And we talk about, uh, he interviewed uh, more than 750 people on the history of HBO, talks to a lot of people that you have uh, watched on television from, you know, The Sopranos to Six Feet Under to Secession to Game of Thrones. Um, So we get into, Miller sort of really gets into sort of how he put that book together. And we do do a long um, segment on HBO Sports. It's Wimbledon legacy, boxing legacy, how it lost boxing, its documentary legacy, and how it seeded that terrain to ESPN and and what HBO Sports is now. So I think you'll, uh, I think you're going to enjoy that. He's followed by Bruce Feldman, my colleague at The Athletic, a senior writer there, covering college football, college football insider for Fox Sports, co-host of the Audible podcast with Stuart Mandel. And we talk about the Lincoln-Riley story and sort of how a big story like that comes to be when you start hearing chatter, um, who talks in the sport, how you approach it. We talked about uh, college football, just the insatiable appetite among fans for information and why that is. And then we get into uh, just players having more agency and players now in many ways, becoming their own public relations firms to, to get out and to try to talk to people like, um, like Bruce Feldman. And then we just finish on um, a little bit of college football talk in terms of uh, that fourth spot and what it would mean if Cincinnati got in for, um, for the sports sort of big picture. So James Andrew Miller to start, Bruce Feldman to finish on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, James Andrew Miller. Jim Miller's been a frequent guest of this podcast. He's got best-selling books on CAA, ESPN, Saturday Night Live, and his latest, and the reason he's here, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuits of New Frontiers. You can get that at Amazon or wherever you buy your books. And please be joined once again by Jim Miller. Jim, congrats on, uh, on book launching month. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. 
Well, listen, I appreciate, you know, you've done the Simmons podcast. Nice of you to slum into into this neck of the woods. So I, I always appreciate that. All right. So first off, you're going to get this question pretty much from everybody in some form or fashion. So you should be used to it by now. But um, but it's an important place to start. And that is, why did you think HBO was worthy of this kind of exploration? I think that um, there were probably three components to it. One was it fit really nicely into uh, the group that I'd already started. SNL, ESPN, and CA were all born in the in the 1970s from incredibly, incredibly modest origins, and they've uh, they've become iconic brand, brands. HBO actually started before the other three, and um, nobody thought it was going to survive. And here we are, 49 years later, and it's uh, had a massive, massive impact on I think both television and the culture. Um, the second thing was that there really hadn't been an exhaustive definitive book of record about its history. And I like that. And I like getting in there and, um, you know, doing the reporting that's entailed. And then the third is that I think there's an incredible parade of really interesting characters. I mean, sometimes I've thought about books or people have approached me about books and it's a great idea, but then you kind of look behind the surface and there's not really, you know, those compelling characters at work and here there's an endless supply. So I guess that was the that 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 was the the three part port of entry for me. So in the book, uh, you write that you you did seven hundred and fifty seven interviews for the book. You know, I don't know how many actually subjects ultimately made it, but you know, that's obviously just a um, a remarkable amount of people you talked to. Over six hundred individuals. Okay, so what? But what's interesting to me is that like. At a certain point, I would imagine at the beginning of the process, like you, you, you have to decide ultimately who you want to, who you want to interview because, like, in theory, Jim, like you could have interviewed five thousand people, right? I mean, there's just it, it's sort of never ending when you get to that big a company like HBO in terms of who, you know, who's been involved in it. So how when when you're sort of thinking about this, do you have like a list of like? 50 or 100 people that you must get like the Jerry Levins and the Michael Fuchs how do you how do you sort of manage the um architecture of of who you're going to interview uh independent of whether they'll actually talk to you or not right so I think that it does start with a core list I, I call them my must-haves because if I'm trying to do a book of record and I want these people to be on the record I have to make sure that they cooperate with me. But then I think one of the interesting, one of the interesting elements that happens along the way, and it's happened with every book I've done, is that, you know, I always show my son who studied journalism, what my outline looks like before and how it, you know, kind of transforms over the next several years. And I think that what winds up happening is when you start reporting on certain incidents or certain inflection points, all of a sudden people you don't know who were involved in things, they have to be added to the list. And maybe because they were, you know, like on the director level or the vice president level, and they didn't get press attention, but they still played a pivotal role. They have to be added. And so um, it's a very, very organic process. I love nothing more than coming out of an interview with like two or three more names that I have to talk to because it's like, oh, wait a second. So-and-so was at that meeting. In fact, it was their idea to do this or they were the one who stopped this. I had no idea about that. And a lot of times I don't have an idea because 
this has never been reported before. So, and that's no disrespect to people who covered HBO as well as they did through the years, but I love finding those Easter eggs along the way. One of the things in the book that uh, you mentioned might have been near the end where you said uh, you, you made it a point that like the, the people that you reported on did not um, did not ask to see book publication prior. They had ed- no editorial input. And I wanted to ask you about that because, I, you know, when when you're dealing with when you're dealing with the kind of high profile business people that you dealt with. It would strike me, Jim, that like sort of control is a big part of who they are and pr- probably how they got to where they got to. So if that's the case, if they didn't ask you to see it, if they if they didn't say, hey, you know, I'll talk to well, you. Well, I didn't I, say they didn't ask me to see it. That's for oh, sure. Oh, they asked you to see Okay, you probably didn't get right. So how did you, I don't know, did you find like when you're interviewing like the head of uh, Discovery or or, you know, the current head of HBO, like how did they, how did they, um, initially get back to you in terms of them wanting to do it or not. And I imagine, because I, I know you've sort of done this before, there is probably an advantage when you start talking to a certain person and that person knows that you talk to that person. Well, if I'm a muckety-muck at you know, company X that's involved in this, I want to get my voice in this book too, right? Is that how usually sort of the process? Right. I mean, I think there is a cascading effect. The ESPN book was a little different because for the first year and a half, ESPN didn't participate. So that was right. yeah. that was a little bit of a problem. But I think that one of the things that, you know, look, I, if, there's a, if there's a glitch on my audio, I record everything and I don't speak to anyone off the record. So I'll speak to them on background, but I won't speak to them off the record. So I think that you, you know, I have, haven't had to issue a correction uh, on, on books. And I think people understand that when they're talking to me, uh, you know, and if I have a question or something doesn't sound right, I will work with them to to try and clarify something. There's no doubt about that. But I just don't think, you know, the process of looking, giving people, you know, everyone who speaks and giving them the chance to kind of revise and extend, as we used to say when I worked in the Senate, um, I think that can be problematic. And uh, it just doesn't, I just don't have the time to do it with that many interviews. How did you mostly do these interviews uh, during a time of COVID? By Zoom, by email? Uh, did you do any face-to-face? Oh, yeah. I did a lot of face-to-face, and I was really upset about the pandemic for obvious reasons, but also because I do like being with people. I mean, I get on planes to do a single interview. I, I, I do like the dynamic about being in, in person, but I most of it was uh, Zoom. Uh, you know, I, cause you still want that kind of connection. Um, so that, I think that was at least the second best option. Okay. So here's what I want to dial down on a couple of these things. Cause I think for a lot of people, maybe outside of those who are going to buy the book because they sort of want to study how, uh, this major entertainment enterprise was built and, you know, they're really into the business end of it. It's gonna be a lot of people who are just fans of HBO shows, you know, fans of Sopranos, fans of Game of Thrones, fans of Succession. So I want to, I'll take Succession now because um, it, it's a, you know, it's one of their signature shows at the moment and it's very current. Um, in reading the book, I saw that you talked to Jeremy Strong, uh, one of the leads, Brian Cox, quoted uh, Adam McKay as part of your oral history here. And Jesse Armstrong. If I'm missing somebody from uh, Succession, you can tell me who I miss. But so those are four significant principles: two significant actors and two significant creators. For any of these shows, Jim, 
I imagine you could choose a hundred people from these shows and they'd all be interesting. But at a certain point, you got to make a decision as to who I'm going to talk to to represent this HBO show. So can you just tell me that process and how much of it is who you want, how much of it is who's available, how much of it is who's willing to talk? Because when it comes to, let's say, Succession, I thought you those were great people. I mean, you know, Logan Roy, Kendall Roy, and two of the creators. You can't do better than that to get a sense of like what the show's about. Right. I mean, look, part of it is triage because I happen to love Succession. And I think it's it's a really, I mean, it's a very, very special show. And it's a special show for HBO. And I think that Kieran Kirkin and Sarah Snook and other probably very fascinating to uh, talk to. Jay Cameron, I mean, Jay Cameron, she is unbelievable. But the problem is that I can't talk to seven cast members from Succession. And then when I get to, you know, another show, only do one or not do any. And so part of it is a balancing act. I mean, obviously, Jesse created the show. Adam was the power behind it. Um, Brian, I think the show, obviously, you know, he's the son that the show revolves around. And I had heard enough and read enough about Jeremy Strong. I think he's 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 utterly fascinating. I hope people who read the book um, agree with me because he has an incredibly cerebral way of approaching um, his work. And uh, I thought that it was it was incredibly compelling. Then again, you know, when Karen hosted SNL, I had friends on the show saying to me, you know, I hope you interview Karen. He's like fantastic. He's wonderful. And of course, you know, I felt like an idiot for not doing it. But you can't do everybody, you know. So it's just sometimes it's just judgment calls. So let's take uh, let's take Jeremy Strong for a second, just because I think. Uh, listeners would be fascinated by how this works. So how do you go about getting Jeremy Strong? Do you go through his um, his agency, his public, uh, his publicist, or have you gone so deep into the HBO universe where you have enough contacts like uh, Adam McKay or something like that, where you, you ask somebody to uh, who's connected to him on a daily basis to reach out uh, for you to talk to him? I'm trying to remember in the case of Jeremy, it was probably one of the other, one, one or the other, either directly to his people or through HBO. I think it was through HBO. Because, you know what, I think it was because that instantly answers the first question that a Jeremy Strong or his reps will have, which is, is HBO cooperating? They don't want to go rogue, right? So I think the fact that the invitation comes through HBO, um, you know, alleviates the, the initial round of concerns. Okay, let's uh, let's sort of focus on obviously the, the very the, the very well known people, the actors and actresses in here. How easy or difficult was it to get these people to talk about this stuff? Whether it's a Kate Winslet, whether it's a Jeremy Strong, whether it's anybody that you interviewed for The Sopranos or Game of Thrones. You know, I think that part of it is that if somebody knows the previous books, um, I think that makes it easier. I think if somebody is feeling very good about their work and comfortable about their work, uh, that, that helps. But I'm not sure that there's one universal rule. I think that one of the other things that I find is that um, I, I think that the more that I can deal directly with uh, with that person or with you know the, per the key person on their team and give them a sense of what I want to, I don't ask any, I don't give any questions in advance and I don't, um, 
I don't take anything off the table, but I also feel like you, you want to give them a sense of what you're up to with this book, you know? And so I try and do as much of describing about what the book is going to be like as possible. So they understand what I'm trying to do. Other than obviously the people who you could not interview because of circumstances, someone like James Gandolfini, who obviously passed away, would have been obviously incredible to talk to about what The Sopranos meant uh, sort of within the HBO prism. Was there anybody that you wanted that that you were not able to get for the book? Dennis Miller, who uh, had a show on HBO for for several years. Um, and ironically, I had a great time with Dennis Miller. I talked to him uh, several times before. Um and if you remember, he was not only on SNL, but he was on the, in the ESPN booth for a while. Um, and I think that, you know, what I was told was it wasn't personal, that it was, I think his, the, the ending of that HBO show left a bad taste in his mouth. And, you know, I don't want to go further and speak for him, but uh, I'm still going to try and get him for the next edition because uh, I think that the Dennis Miller show was a very interesting passage for HBO. The, you know, the, all these shows, um, all the iconic HBO shows are significant given the era that they, they, um, they played in, um, given some of the people that were on. And so, you know, the reality is you could have done an oral history of any of these shows, you know, you could have done 300 page oral history of just Game of Thrones, forget about anything else. Was there one show in particular that for you, um, really excited you about diving into just for your own personal, um, personal interest, or maybe for you, this was, this was the HBO show that, uh, that spoke to you most of all. I think that, um, I think Larry Sanders and Oz were two big blips on my radar in part, because even though there were shows beforehand, including, um, dream on, which a lot of people loved and which, David and Marta created, and they're just, they're brilliant. I think Sanders was a very important show for HBO. I happen to love it. I loved every episode. It wasn't a big rating success. And, um, but what it did do was it sent word, it sent a message to the Hollywood community that HBO was going to be in this series business even more than it had been in the past. And that it was a, friendly place. It was an artistically friendly place. So, and creators had a lot of control. I mean, Gary turned in an episode that was only 20 minutes long. I mean, at one point he took a year off, you know, it's like those things you can't do in a network and Oz, I mean, my gosh, it spoke directly to HBO's, uh, you know, promise to the viewers, which is we're going to do things that the networks don't do. It's so intense, so violent, so, I mean, dramatic, I mean, everything. It, it, so I, I wanted to kind of drill down on those two. And then, of course, you know, I mean, look, obviously The Sopranos and everybody has their favorite shows. And I, I certainly wasn't going to ignore any of my favorites. But um, I think that's one of the things that you start to realize about HBO, which is you look left and there's all of a sudden, you know, Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Veep. And then there's Sex and the City and Game of Thrones and Six Feet Under. I mean, it, it goes the side, you know, and that's not even to mention David Simon's work, including The Wire. So, I mean, it's an unbelievable collection of content. Who hadn't you talked to prior to um, working on this book that you just, uh, it's someone who's an actor and actress who you just found so compelling in your first uh, interactions with, uh, with he or she? 
Well, Evan Rachel Wood, for sure. Uh, she was she was in a, you know several things on HBO. She's just she is so compelling. She is so smart. She is so poised. She has a way of of being incredibly raw and transparent in a way that makes you uh, not only understand but empathize and appreciate uh, what she she does on camera and what she's been through. Uh, I thought she was amazing. I mean, uh, Kate Winslet is the varsity. Uh, she as well. Um, I think I had spoken to her once before this, but I think, you know, look, uh, it's so easy for people in the rest of the country to say, oh, you know, Hollywood types and, you know, celebrities. And they're, you know, they think of them as being somewhat shallow and at the mercy of writers and everything else. But I, you know, time and time again, um, I find a lot of these people incredibly smart, uh, very honest, and um, and very caring and aware of what they do for a living and why they do it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're going to spend the second half, we'll spend the second half of this podcast talking about HBO Sports, because um, I think obviously a lot of people listening to this have the sports um, you know, sports interests naturally given the, the subject matter of the podcast. And most of them, unless you're of a certain age, will have at least seen something on HBO uh, Sports. One of the things, Jim, that I was kind of blown away by, and it's not like I'd forgotten this, but I'd certainly sort of put it in the back of my mind because it's just you associate now Wimbledon um, with ESPN and, and NBC for so long was HBO's Wimbledon legacy. Incredible, right? Um, which you got into. It's incredible. Like you really forget like just how much of a forerunner they were in bringing, um, you know, non-NBC matches to uh, to an American audience. And so I'll just ask you broadly, like what um, what was your perspective on HBO and tennis? Because it was kind of fascinating because I think people forget – you know, Billie Jean King and, and just how big a uh, how big a role they had, at least at a, a moment in, in America in terms of presenting tennis coverage. Look, if it wasn't for HBO Sports, we wouldn't have been able to see Wimbledon during the week. Yeah. It was, a, it was it was an incredible, incredible step forward. And they went to such lengths that, look, they used to put tapes on the Concord to get it back in New York so we could get it on the air. I mean, we were seeing things faster than anybody. And I think it goes to it goes directly to HBO's ambitions at the time, both with boxing and with tennis, uh, you know, and particularly Michael Fuchs, who was CEO during that time. He happened to love tennis. He happened to also love going to Wimbledon and holding court, excuse the expression, um, there. And uh, I think his commitment was was deep and wide. It was also the same way with boxing. I mean, he got Mike Tyson to do some fights and created that whole era where we had Hagler and Hearns and everybody else there. Um, so I think that it was interesting. I loved the idea of going and chronicling the the beginnings of HBO Sports. I didn't realize I'd wind up having to chronicle the death of HBO Sports too. But, you know, 
that's a slightly different story. Why do you think that they at at the time they did they they realized that there was an opportunity for boxing and high level boxing that they could get into. I remember obviously it's a little predates my time, but ABC obviously um, was a major player. Wild World of Sports had fights, and I remember you but know in so the about, afternoon. Right. Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, so like what, what was kind of brilliant on their part is like they, while the big networks were obviously focused on like uh, the NFL and college football, they, they saw an opening where, you know, we could really build up our service by having these championship fights. And like you said earlier, like they ended up with Hagler Hearns and Leonard and Tyson and Duran. I mean, their, their run of, of what they showed, especially in the, mid to late 80s was incredible. Absolutely. And I think that once again, they were so smart because what Michael Fuchs and Seth Abraham, who was running HBO Sports at the time, they were able to sit down with Don King, for instance, and said, look, the networks have, have just you know put you out to pasture in the afternoons. We want to put you into prime time. We want to make this an event. And not only that, but we don't have commercials. And we don't have any restrictions, so we're going to do a lot of shoulder programming. We're going to spend a lot of time they develop 24-7. We're going to spend a lot of time leading up to the fight. We're going to have, you know, people, um, you know, great commentators and and really serious analysts who really love uh, boxing. And then we're going to stay with the fight afterwards. We're not going to cut to some late night show. And so all of a sudden you start to see a much, much uh, more invigorated uh, you know, boxing presence, uh, you know, in the culture. I mean, remember in the, in the 40s and 50s, it was huge. Then it started to dissipate in the early 60s. And HBO brings it back with a vengeance. And, you know, uh, starting with, you know, the rumble in the jungle and, uh, and the thrill in Manila. And so I think one of the things that you can look to HBO sports is doing is both with tennis and with boxing, you know, really doing something that the network's, weren't doing anymore and doing it very, very, very well. By the way, the production quality, I mean, you think about Ross Greenberg and what he brought to the control room and to the truck and all those people like, I mean, the the Dave Harmons of the world and great producers. Um, And that's not to mention, of course, you know, Jim Lampley and everybody. I mean, they are, that is an amazing kind of run that they have there. How much, um, you know, one of the things you sort of, sort of, uh, inferred this but like the fact that you could just hear the corner people talking to the boxers you heard cursing on there you never heard that on uh on over the air stuff how much was tyson um how would you rate tyson's importance jim when it came to hbo boxing and and what they were at their heights well i mean look he was people people who are under under 40 may not remember this but when mike 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 was such a force he totally he was so dominating and so charismatic that you couldn't get enough of him. And, you know, HBO was fearless in terms of making deals, lots of money, you know, lots of money. Now ESPN had Mike Tyson on Friday night's fights. I talk about that in the ESPN book, but I think that, I think that, you know, obviously the relationship between Mike Tyson and HBO sports was, was a very, very close one. And, I think they they helped create, you know, both the myth and show the power of Mike Tyson during those years. From your perspective, how did they lose their boxing monopoly? What 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 happened to HBO where it they they ceded this terrain? I think part of it was that 
they they obviously they lost Tyson to Showtime, which turned out to be not as bad as they thought for a variety of reasons, including his prison term. But I think that there was also I remember something when when HBO started to go into original programming, uh, you know, and doing series, that money had to come from somewhere. It was for many years somewhat binary. And so they weren't spending. In fact, they let go of Wimbledon, which was a big emotional thing for HBO Sports. And I chronicle that. Yeah. yeah. And in hindsight, by the way, it was nothing. It was a pittance compared to what it is today. Right. Right. But but my only point is they they realized, look, at the beginning, they were their biggest thing was to everybody. We got boxing and we have uncut, uncensored movies without uh, without commercials. And also the blockbusters on every corner. So they can't advertise that. So they have to go into original programming. And I think they needed money for that. And I think that they got to a point where they're also their pay-per-view fundamentally changed the financial equation. So you had, you know, a lot of promoters and a lot of fighters going for the sure fire bucks um, with pay-per-view, even though it wasn't necessarily sure fire sometimes, but um, I think that changed it as well. There's a pretty um, poignant uh, quote here, long sort of paragraph quote by Rick Bernstein of HBO Sports, where um, he sort of talked that after Ross Greenberg, who's the head of the division, left, uh, Mike Lombardo came to him and said, like, these documentaries look the same. They feel old. Uh, there's too much sort of history and um, uh, about them. And, um, you know, it it. It sort of like changed, I guess, sort of the the perception of what the HBO sports docs were. And then obviously we sort of see heading forward um, that they seeded this DSPN. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. One, you know, when I was growing up, Jim, like the HBO documentaries, the sports ones were amazing. I mean, it was just like the gold standard. I'm sure if you were a documentarian who was interested in sports, like this was your goal to get there. I mean, if you, you know, or PBS with Ken Burns, whatever, but like HBO was the gold standard of this. So they had this incredible run and they had this monopoly, in my opinion, of this genre. And then they let ESPN get in with more modern day stories. And I wonder if you could sort of just talk about just what you learned on your reporting. And again, it's very much a hindsight um, thing, but man, they had it. Like they had the monopoly on this. Like they were the go-to place for this. And then ESPN became now the place for documentarians to do their sports stories. Yeah. I, by the way, I don't mean it's a shameless plug, but one of my favorite um, editions of my origins podcast was the origins of 30 for 30, because I, I went into great detail about, about what you're, you're speaking about both with Skipper Simmons, Connor and everybody else involved. And I think that one of the things, look, I don't think that HBO let ESPN, I don't mean to quibble, but, you know, part of it was that HBO, uh, ESPN was very, very aggressive about stealing it from HBO because they felt like, musically speaking, the documentaries were variations on a theme. They had a very consistent DNA. And most importantly, ESPN thought that the HBO docs were very historical in nature. They weren't contemporary. They weren't speaking to a younger audience. And I think that, you know, one of the things that Mike Lombardo correctly figured out was that the nature of those docs had to change. And, um, and they never quite, you know, you got to give HBO sports, particularly Ross, uh, 
a lot of credit and that documentary team, a lot of credit because they did develop it. And while, like you said, while they're growing, while you were growing up, it was a major, major, uh, you know, it, it was a big thing. There were four a year. And when they came out, we all loved them. We, they all won awards. It was fantastic storytelling people like Ezra, you know, were Ezra Edelman. Yeah. Ezra Edelman, who would go on later to do OJ. Um, he was directing them. Other people were directing them. I mean, unbelievable, uh, you know, farm, you know, unbelievable bench of creative talent, both inside and out HBO. But I think they did get hoisted on their own petard a little bit. And 30 for 30, you know, took, took that and, and ran with it. So what you have is all of a sudden you have, kind of boxing kind of disappearing or slowing down. You have, they lose Wimbledon. They don't own documentaries the way they did. I mean, you have real sports with Brian Gumbel, but for so many, in so many ways, uh, HBO sports after the beginning of the new century really starts to shrink. And, um, and I think that that's a, you know, that's one of the things that I felt really compelled to, to kind of dig into. I remember watching the two Escobars on ESPN 30 for 30. And I, me- I remember thinking to myself, this really should have been an H- like HBO. This is the kind of thing that HBO should be doing. And it signaled, uh, at least for me, it sort of signaled the shift. HBO now, Jim, HBO's sort of, I don't even know if you call it a sports division, but HBO still does um, real sports with Brian Gumble. They still have hard knocks. They announced not too long ago um, a late night sports series with Bomani Jones. Um, and Bob Costas, they have. And Bob Costas, right. So there are still elements of sports within this universe. What do you think the future of sports is in relation to HBO? I think we're not going to see them acquiring rights. Uh, first of all, they're part of a larger ecosystem that you know now David Zasloff runs uh, or will run when it gets approved. I, and the acquiring, I think, is going to be with – Jeff Zucker and the Turner operation. So I don't think you're going to see HBO Sports have big rights packages. I think that Nancy Abraham and Lisa Heller, who run documentaries, are going to be doing some, uh, they're going to continue to do some sports documentaries. They're going to be really selective about it. But the, you know, I think Casey Bloys, who runs HBO content, goes to great lengths to say HBO Sports is not dead as a brand. And they're going to figure out ways to keep it alive. Here's the last one on HBO and then I'll finish up real quick with you on ESPN. Um, if you're a, if you're a filmmaker to uh, maybe not a filmmaker, if you're a sort of a creative person today, you know, an Adam McKay type or, um, you know, or, a, or, or an actor who, um, has designs on doing high quality programming. Um, where does HBO sit today in your universe when you're thinking about them, you know, versus Netflix or versus working for, Apple TV or Hulu, um, you know, if, if I'm a creative person with some leverage to do something interesting, how am I thinking about HBO these days? Well, I mean, look, I think you've hit on the central question for the next several years. That is the big question because everybody wants content. Everybody needs content. Everybody needs scale. And so the question becomes, look, HBO lost its way. I, I got into it in a long way, you know, in a big way when they decided to, um, 
stick to their model. And then all of a sudden Netflix is saying, oh no, we're not going to do a, we're not going to do a house of cards. We're not going to do a pilot. We'll give you two years guaranteed, David Finker. Here you go. I mean, all of a sudden it's, it's not a level playing field. The playing field has kind of, look, Netflix still spends a lot more, a lot more than Apple, Amazon, and of course, HBO. There's, there's a huge financial advantage that Netflix has. But I think that one of the things that you're starting to see that, you, that, you, that we've seen under Casey Bloys is that he is trying to make sure that it is once again, a very talent friendly, artistic, creative friendly home. And sometimes people, you know, they have relationships with those people. You know, they have, look, you look at Sam Levinson who created Euphoria. He signed a big deal for, to stay with HBO because he feels very comfortable with Casey and Francisco, Orsi and and Kathleen McCaffrey, that team is very important to him. He feels very comfortable with them. So I think the the short answer to your question, I'm sorry to ramble, but it's such an important question. I think relationships matter. I think that it's not so much, there's a great quote from Mario Emanuel in the book about brands don't matter anymore because HBO had a halo with its brand for many years. I don't think the brands matter so much as the individuals that you're going to be working with. Last one for me, and this is a uh, – let me make sure I have my, uh, my numbers here correctly as I'm asking this. This is an ESPN question just because I um, have you on. And this is like sort of this – this is an existential question. I could have you on two years from now. It would be the, sort of the same premise. Um, the numbers just came out, Jim, that ESPN shrank another 10% to end fiscal 2021 where they have – they're in 76 million U.S. households. They were at 84 million households. At the end of fiscal 2020, obviously, you know, you know this better than anybody. You wrote the book. They were at 100 million households at one point. So now we're, we're working at a 76 million U.S. households base for ESPN cable. Streaming, ESPN Plus is now up to 17 million subscribers. Um, it's up a lot over 2020. They're clearly, Jim, going to try to play this game where they get as much as they can out of the cable business while building up their streaming service. That that's essentially what they are now. Um, in the, let's take the near term in the near term. Do you think that's what they do? This is the strategy that they're, they try their best to maintain the cable package while building up ESPN plus, or does something super dramatic happen in the, the next year or two where, you know, I don't know. They, they, they decide to go all in with, with plus and, and and put their programming on uh, that is on cable now to plus. My, my sense is that, and again, this is I guess Jimmy Pacharo and others at Disney get paid the big bucks for this. They're gonna try to wring as much money out of that cable as they can for as long as they can. And so if it was my guess, I like I don't think we're gonna see the end of cable for the next two or three years. But but I'll see to you if you have some thoughts on it. Well, first of all, um, I go to great lengths in the book to talk about what I consider to be a huge missed opportunity. I mean, Bob Iger is probably one of the most successful media executives in the history of media, but he had some initial conversations with Jeff Bukas about Disney taking Time Warner instead of what they did with Fox. I thought that would have been a brilliant move for many, many reasons, including the obvious, most obvious one for me, which is take Turner Networks and ESPN and then spin them off. I just... I mean, that to me was the moment when ESPN could have had a different trajectory. That said, look, 
Jimmy Pitar has been on and, and Bob and Bob, they've been on an incredible spending spree. It's not like the fact that there's 76 million homes and they're saying, all right, let's start shutting this thing down or we're really worried we better stop spending money. They they spent a lot of money on NFL. They got a much better package than they've ever got. They got NHL. They competed very uh, you know, aggressively for uh, EPL, PGA. I mean, we can go down the list. And so I don't see any signs that the powers that be in Burbank or Jimmy for that matter are taking that 76 million number and starting to fold. They're incredibly aggressive. The problem is that unless you spin this thing out and you spin it out in a way that Wall Street understands, because sometimes Wall Street doesn't understand things the way owners of companies do, um, you know, this is gonna keep on shrinking. I don't think cable is gonna disappear, obviously, but you know, at some point, remember, you're talking about eight or nine dollars a household per month. It, that's you know, I mean, you think about Marvel and Pixar and all those things that were they were bought with ESPN money. That's when look when Skipper and George were running the uh, the company, they were spinning off like twelve billion dollars in revenue. Uh, so at some point, you start to think, oh boy, I mean, are we going to be getting the increases that you know we used to get? No. Are we going to be getting the volume of households? No. So, you know, what are we going to be doing? And I think that they, you know, I think they're going to have to spin it off at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the one, th- um, the, you know, the, in terms of a cash infusion, the one thing people should uh, should always keep in mind, I imagine you'd agree with me in some form, is if Disney ever decides, Jim, to, I don't know what the business term would be, but to to essentially license the ESPN name to a sports gambling company or, or sort of form whatever that partnership would be, you are looking at a billion-dollar deal. So th- there there are ways for ESPN to get an infusion of cash if they so desire. Uh, but I agree with you on um, – you know this is something that always gets sort of talked about in this space. Like I don't think cable is going to die. It's like sort of I think the real question is like what's the floor? And like is it a $40 million household floor? Is it a 30 million household floor? But I just, I, I mean, unless I'm totally wrong, I just can't see in our lifetime, like they're not being at least some segment of the American population that still wants this bundle because it's just easier for them. To, well, not only that, but with. remember something, I have friends who, who all of a sudden said to me over the past couple of months, Hey, you know, I realize I'm paying $20 for this, $15 a month. For this. Exactly. It's like, yeah. hold on, bring back the, bring back cable. I mean, it's like, you're right. you know. Yeah. Streaming is, if you're a soccer fan, you're in like the multiple hundreds of dollars to get all these streaming services. Right. If you want to see all right. the And then all of a sudden it's like somebody said to me, the other day, they said, you know, I wanted to watch I Love Lucy. Well, now I have to pay, you know, whatever it is on Paramount Plus or I forget. It's like, right. it's getting crazy. And so I think some people are kind of reevaluating it, but Look, there's always going to be, I, I think there'll be a core constituency, like you said, but that's not going to be enough to help ESPN through what I think is going to be a very, very important transition in the ne- in next year or two. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, Jim Miller is uh, the author of uh, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. Uh, check that out on Amazon or elsewhere. Uh, he's going to be on uh, a lot of podcasts over the next couple of weeks and other places to uh so to give you a sense of what's in the book, uh, we'd have to do honestly like a 10 hour podcast to do everything in the book. Cause he covers um, all the like phenomenal HBO shows that have all 
been a major part of our lives. Uh, Jim, I know how hard you worked on this, man. I mean, this was just an epic, uh, an epic uh, amount of research and reporting, and I'm sure so much of the challenge also was just editing out um, so much good stuff. I'm sure you have like, uh, you know, the, the, the tinderbox extras could be a book in itself, but congratulations, man. I'm glad people are reading it. And, uh, and from what I've seen, um, just even the write-ups, whether it's the wall street journal or the ringer or elsewhere, um, there's been a lot of news out of it. So I wish you the best of luck with the book and I'm, I'm really happy to see it come out and, and, and to see people react so well to it. Well, thank you for all your support and the interest and, uh, look forward to talking about your book one day. You might be waiting a while, but thank you. Jim Miller, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleague at The Athletic, Bruce Feldman, if you're a college football fan. He really does not need any introduction, though I will let you know that he is a senior writer at The Athletic covering college football. He's a college football insider and reporter for Fox Sports. He and my colleague Stuart Mandel, or fellow colleague Stuart Mandel, co-host the uh, the excellent Audible podcast. So check that out as well. And Bruce, um, thank you for coming on on short notice. But there's so much going on in college football. I needed to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Yes, it has been a wild. It's been a wild couple of weeks, and it only got wilder this past weekend. Okay, so. Um, Let's talk about this. This story could obviously change um, between us taping and when people listen. But when something like uh, when someone like Lincoln Riley, um, when news breaks that he's leaving Oklahoma for USC, and you know, obviously it, it, it impacts two major college football programs. Like, is that would that have been something that you had been hearing chatter about before it breaks um, um, over the? over the weekend or I want to just get a sense from a college football insider. Like, like how does it work? Like, are you hearing news and then are you trying to be the first person to, to ultimately break that? How does it work when, when you get a major figure like that, uh, changing programs, it gets complicated, Richard, because you, you know, you said it, it affects two programs and this one, it actually was related to three programs. So I'll give you a little back background for this one. So, uh, in the middle of November, there started being some rumblings out of Louisiana. LSU is a huge job that has been open for a little while, like USC, not as long as USC was open. But so LSU is open and the AD there, Scott Woodward, has a reputation for making splashy hires. He had hired Chris Peterson away from Boise State when he was the AD at Washington. That was a huge coup. He hired Jimbo Fisher away from FSU when he was the AD at uh, Texas A&M. And then even at LSU, he got Kim Mulkey, who, as you well know, was a big time women's basketball coach at Baylor to come home to the state of Louisiana. So everyone's expecting a swing for the fences. Wow. Hire. There were reports coming out of out of Louisiana that Lincoln Riley was going to leave Oklahoma to become the next head coach at LSU. And I started hearing that. And some of my one of my colleagues on the uh, OUB, Jason Kersey from The Athletic had asked me and I started making some calls and I was told 
he's not Lincoln Riley's not taking that job. He is not going there. And I ended up tweeting it out. And this was like the, like I said, the middle of, I think it was November 17th to basically shoot down the speculation. Well, the reports kept coming. The reports kept coming, you know, more people were reporting it. There were terms attached to it. And LSU had a game Saturday night, as did Oklahoma. Oklahoma was playing its bedlam rival against Oklahoma State on Saturday night. And there was a lot of speculation. Will LSU announce that Lincoln Riley is going to be the next head coach? Um, you know, my sources were, were still strong that that was not going to be the case, um, that he was not going. And so it was kind of an interesting dynamic. Well, then... After Oklahoma State beats Oklahoma, Lincoln Riley is asked about the rumors and he goes, I'm not going to be the next head coach at LSU. Just shot it down right then and there. That's Saturday night. Sunday morning, uh, and for to some degree, you know, it's like you do feel a little bit vindicated on this because a lot of people are like, you don't know what you're talking about, whatever. And then Sunday morning happens and I get a call. I'm in Los Angeles at 9 a.m. my time, which is obviously 11 a.m. Central or Oklahoma time about Lincoln Riley is seriously considering the USC job and it looks like he's going to take it. And I am kind of floored by this because it just like, this is such a 180 from where we just were. Right. And I'm, I always thought the only, and I've known Lincoln Riley for, I don't know, since he was a student assistant at Texas tech. So, you know, 15 plus almost 20 years that the only job Lincoln Riley would leave Oklahoma for would be as an NFL coach. So I'm like processing this in my head and I still was hesitant because in my feeling on USC is USC has, has made a lot of bumbling moves of late, both athletically and university wide. And I was like, man, USC can't pull this off. And that's my, my, my headspace at that point is I'm processing this. So I, I, thought about and this other person who told me was very sure of it it's a good source um and at that point i put something out there which i knew was going to get draw a lot of ire which was basically you know expecting (laughs) usc now to swing for the fences and try to lure lincoln riley there knowing that that's what's going on um and i got you know I, i stopped looking at some of the comments after a while and then i got a call from same source about an hour later, this thing's going down, it's happening. And then, so I talked to my editors at the athletic, there was a certain time where, you know, I'll be honest where it was like, okay, there, he's going to, uh, he's going to tell his team this. And then it's like, we're going to, we're going to have the story ready to go. There's going to be a link to it and everything. And so that was kind of the process of it, but it's rare with, I mean, this is, we use the term bombshell a lot. This is about as much of a bombshell story as we've had in college football in a long, long time. All right. This, I appreciate that background. It's really fascinating. Um, without obviously giving up individual sourcing, who talks in your sport, agents, head coaches, assistants, everyone. Is it when, when you are reporting on a story like that, is it, um, like, is it, how do I sort of phrase this? You know, in the NFL, like... Where do the leagues come from? Yeah, I mean, the NFL, you sort of, at least in certain programs, you know that assistant coaches are probably pretty tight-lipped. But my sense is, and again, you're the expert here, I'm not. My sense is in college football, sourcing could really come from everywhere. 
Because it feels like a lot of people like to talk. Am I am I right about that, or am I? Off? Yeah. So here's here's what's interesting about college football relate compared to like you know on the NFL side, you obviously have Adam Schefter and you have Glazer and Ian Rappaport and a handful of others. But it's a handful mostly of not many people like are not part many. Of that it's elite it's basically Adam and then you know Jay will have some big scoops and Rappaport will have a few others and maybe Tom Pelissaro or some of the NFL Network guys. But they're almost all national people who get the big scoops. Um, you know, with NFL, it's very hard, I think, for the team reporters to to it doesn't it's not like it never happens, but it's hard for them to 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 do that and get the biggest scoops on the college beat. There's a very good chance it can happen organically or with a local reporter, because sometimes they have boosters. A lot of times they have boosters or a number two AD or, you know, maybe they've heard it from parents of a player. You know, they have those sources on the ground. Right. And so that's what you're, you know, like as a national person, you're competing as much really against those, you know, those other reporters than you are against other national reporters. And, you know, taking a step back from that, I it's not like I've had this conversation with some of my the people I know I can probably compete with on stories, but I would guess I probably get less stuff from agents than maybe some of my other you know, the, most of my friends who work on the beat, most of the stuff I feel like I get comes from coaches. And it doesn't mean that always, like there's sometimes when it's a coach who's not at a certain program that you have to, you know, it's not good enough to go with it, but at least that's the lead where I get from. And so a lot of that stuff sends me into a, you know, into the chase mode where you're like, okay, I got to get this confirmed. And sometimes it's hard to, to, there's been a bunch of times where I feel like, I've been quote unquote beaten on a story by a couple of minutes because I've had something and it's like somebody said, Hey, can you wait? I want to tell my players first. And you know, if you're waiting for 10 minutes for 30 minutes, you know, there's a good chance that's getting out, but it's, you know, from my perspective, I've been doing this for a long enough time that I'm going to respect that ask, you know, because you know, you're also the, like, it's a very smart move because I think down the road that would pay off. This is my take. Right? Well, also, Richard, I, I mean, I think the thing that I factor in and look, I have a, we all have kind of slightly different jobs. I don't, you know, like, and I have a lot of respect for all, like I, for the people who are in the strictly newsbreaker space and the professional beats, I have a lot of respect for them. But, uh, you know, a lot of times I think of it this way, um, you know, yes, it, I would like to be first on this hire or, you know, whatever it is. But I know if I, you know, if I, if I go against and like I betray somebody, set, confided something, we say, hey, you can't do it. You know, can you hold off on this? You know, it's kind of a dick move to go to, to do an end around and be like, no, I, I got to go with this or whatever. But I know that if I am, um, you know, if, if somebody asks, that I think that's not too much to ask because we're talking about a matter of minutes, but I also know that there's other stuff that there's other scoops and other information. It may not even be scoops. Like I work as a sideline reporter for Fox and I know I have really good access at places where it may help you just, and I'm not even talking about like, you know, you're, you're getting secrets to stuff, but it's stuff where it's like, there's so many stories I've been able to do because I can text a coach and say, Hey, what are the five, you know, toughest jobs in the country and able to turn around stories because you have relationships with coaches. It doesn't mean if one of a coach says, yeah, 
my player just killed somebody. Don't say anything. You're not, you know, you're not going to put on the hat of the reporter. But at the same time, I think when it comes down to like, okay, I want to tell our players because there have been times, and I don't think I've done this, but there have been times where I've seen somebody go, you know, so-and-so is leaving for such job. He's going to tell the team in 20 minutes. I'm like, no, he's not going to tell the team. You just told the team. (laughs) You know, it's like, that's how this stuff works now. I'm asking this question, understanding that like, you know, there's really no way to measure this, Bruce, but the reaction of college football fans to really any kind of news, I feel like is very, very unique. That One, there's an unsatiable appetite for news. Two, the reaction to news is so fever pitch. Again, I get that if you're a soccer fan, you'd be telling me the same thing and saying nothing is close to that, and I'd respect it. I know NFL fans are crazy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in my estimation, Bruce, just from my sort of anecdotal watching all this, there is something unique about college football, um, whether it's the message board culture or whatever, where any kind of rumor, any kind of news sends people into a frenzy. And from your perspective, obviously someone who reports nationally and many times, by the way, creates this frenzy when you put out news out there, what what has, what have been your experiences on this? And do sometimes maybe you just got to walk away from it because I'm sure it, it can go from passion to like insanity or people screaming at you or death threats or whatever the craziness uh, sort of comes from there. What's What's been your sort of writ large kind of uh, uh, processing of this? Because I don't know. It just feels like college football is a little bit of a different animal than anything else. Yeah, I, look, I think people, a lot of identities are co- connected to the universities and the schools. So, you know, it's very visceral. I mean, I think the most... Uh, the sh- the furthest out example of what you're talking about was tied into all the stuff that that seeped out of the Jerry Sandusky, um, Joe Paterno situation. That was such an ugly scandal there, and it was like I I mean, you know, there were so many layers to it because you even had like journalists who was like people kind of looked at them differently after they'd see how kind of they reacted, but you, you making a lot of value judgments on people by how they're tweeting and how they're defending things. Right. And to a smaller extent, um, you had some of that equally ugly, um, from the Baylor situation where you have Art Bryles get fired, the AD get fired, Ken Starr get fired. I mean, there's some really like, I think what those things did was they redefined, what actually is a scandal, right? Because it's not like, an, I, you'll, you'll like, he'll like snicker at this. And I think it, I agree with it. Whereas like a lot of times college reporters would put on like the NCAA sleuth hat. And it was like, Oh, Johnny Smith got free dinners or whatever. And, and like, that's a scandal or, you know, this person got, got a starter jacket, you know, or whatever. It's like, all right, first of all, you know, we don't have to talk about like the, the sham that had been college amateurism for years, but like that was a quote unquote scandal. No, yeah, no, I, I mean, looking back, the Terrell Pryor stuff, it's absurd, it's ridiculous. That was yeah. a scandal, but yet I remember at the time it was like the biggest story in the country at one point, yeah. And I think there was, there was an element of gotcha to that. Like, I think you worked at SI at that point where it's like. You know, Jim Trussell had a certain persona, and I think for a lot of people, it was like, aha, this is fake. This is whatever, because he had players who were 
who are not living to the letter of the NCA law or whatever, which and law, NCA rule. You know, it's just, you know, a lot of this stems from like the, the look, the NCA does, does do a lot of good things. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but there's also a lot of other stuff which is just really inane. And so there's a lot of hypocrisy tied to it. And I think in the course of that, it's, it's kind of like wrapped around what you're talking about. Like, I think for everybody else, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, they're just big time businesses where fans really care about the teams. But I think there's just something different that's tied into the college side. And so, I mean, I try not to get too caught up in what you're saying. I know it's there, but it's like, it, it's just like, it's like reading the comments. I mean, look, there was a friend of mine said, you ought to read the comments underneath your tweet from three hours before the Lincoln Riley news officially went down. And it's like, you just can't, you know, it's just like you can, but I mean, just like people are really passionate about it and they, they don't want to be told stuff. They don't want to, they don't, they, they don't want to believe. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. You know, one of the, the, the biggest stories in sports, Bruce, over the last uh, year plus has been the um, more agency for college athletes and particularly like those at the highest levels of college athletics, star fo- college football players, star college basketball players, their ability to license now their own image and their name, uh, their ability to transfer uh, more freely than they did before. I mean, again, so Lincoln Riley thing just sort of like um, is like exhibit A of just how uh, how much of a, just a absolute scam um, was being run by colleges in the NCAA not to allow students to freedom of transfer, given that coaches could do it uh, could do it on a dime. But I, I, I sort of set up that um, as a precept to ask you with with players having more agency now in sort of their own college careers. Have you found um, as a reporter that the players are more willing to talk or players maybe seek you out? Because one of the things I know just from my limited time of calling, of um, of writing about college football, which I did a little bit for SI, they, they were, I mean, sports information directors were like really tight on access. Like, you know, certain, this player can only talk on this day or this, we're not letting this freshman talk. And I wonder now that the players have more financial agency like, have you seen from your perspective, has that changed where they're taking more control of their, um, of their public image to, Absolutely. and, and the media, the media would be part of that. Yeah. It's not across the board. Um, look, Lincoln Riley, we were talking about him a minute ago. Like he has policies where he has a star freshman quarterback that he did not want talking. I think Holly Rowe wanted to talk to him after a game and that was against their policy. So there's some of it that's still 
limited, but I think largely across the board, you see it with social media. I think one of the things that has been really interesting to see once NIL has actually been here, um, you, what you have is decades of a certain value judgment that is there. And so part of it is like, look, I, Urban Meyer, who was obviously a successful college head coach, he could have been the head coach of Texas, but I think Urban Meyer was, was leery, if not scared of the NIL dynamic because of what that does to his locker room. And there's a certain power structure that exists in college athletics. I, I feel like it exists in probably more in college football than other sports, but I don't know that for sure. But like where there is a control aspect of it and it's different, you're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds. And I think some coaches were, were really scared of it and afraid of how this is going to screw things up and change things and make it harder for them to, to create a culture or however they wanted to do it. And I don't want to sound too cynical as I say that, but I think what we've seen is there's a lot of really good things that have come out of NIL where a lot of players who may not be making that much money, but they're making a little bit more money. They're smart enough and savvy enough to leverage some of these things. We've seen a bunch of creative things from like the dentist in Kentucky who took a really good defensive lineman to make a funny, you know, social media clip. And we've seen, um, you know, backup players really do some really great efforts because they're really smart. I don't even say kids are really smart people and doing it. And I remember like there's a, there's a backup quarterback here at UCLA, Chase Griffin. You know, I've known him for years. He's really, really, you know, an impressive, you know, he could do anything he wants. Right. And I remember right before NIL took hold, uh, I ended up meeting up with him and just, you know, I had dinner with him. We were talking and he's talked about how awesome it's going to be because a lot of the, the athletes at UCLA with some of the biggest social media followings are female athletes and what they can leverage now and how, how great this is going to be. And I think it's, it's been really interesting to see how that has happened. And I think what you've also had now is getting back to that value judgment thing that had taken root, you know, Travion Henderson, great freshman running back at Ohio state. You know, it's like after he has a huge game, there's a, tweet or pictures of him with a really looks like high-end SUV or truck that some local dealership has partnered with him on. I don't know the exact terms on what it is, but it's like, you know, that's probably good for the business of the local, the, of the local uh, dealership. And I'm sure it's good for Travion Henderson. Um, from everything I've ever heard from, you know, covering Ohio State and doing one of their games that everybody in the program really really thinks highly of him and, and his approach on things. It's like the world has not, you know, the world has not stopped off its access because of that. But I just think for, if you would show that picture of this young star running back with a, you know, I don't know, $60,000 truck after a big game, like it would have sent off so many whistles and bells from the NCA and from, you know, local reporters and snooping around and other, you know, fan bases being outraged and everything else. And now it's just like, Hey, you know, good for Travion Henderson, good for, you know, like, and good for the other players who are coming up into that space, as opposed to the ones who, you know, are far removed from it going, man, I wish that was around when I played. Uh, it's an interesting answer. Um, uh, last one for me. Um, and again, this Bruce may change. Uh, if you were gonna, if you listen to this podcast, like literally one week from today, like 
this question could be irrelevant, but as you and I are talking heading into a championship weekend, there's a very real possibility that Michigan and Cincinnati could be in the college football playoff. We'll ultimately sort of get word on that. Having covered um, television for a long time, and again, if they don't sort of say it publicly, the reality is that if tell if you know if the ESPNs and Foxes of the world had their druthers, you know, you would want Ohio State, Alabama, Michigan, and Notre Dame to play in the playoff every year, or or you know some you you can sub out you know one of let's say Notre Dame or something like that for let's say there was some team that had like you know Trevor Lawrence or something like Clemson one year, but the the reality is Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame in particular are major national viewership teams this year's going to likely be different um with you know georgia looking like they're going to be in this and then cincinnati in this do you um do you have an understanding that you work for obviously fox so you have a little bit invested in here like long term is it good for college football when you get some of these new teams to get exposure or um is there downside because the real reality is if you have an alabama or if you have a Notre Dame, it, it does add millions of people to the to the viewing party, basically. It does add millions of, of viewership exposure. I think there's an element of discovery that works. Like a couple of years ago, LSU had the amazing season. It's Joe Burrow, uh, you know, you who had a, I don't say came from nowhere, but just like they went 15-0. and 0, They beat everybody. It was a fun team to be around. It was you know, it, it captured everybody's attention. It was different, right? And I think, it, and obviously LSU is not Coastal Carolina. It is not Oregon State, right? Like, so, you know, the previous two coaches had also won national titles, but it had been a while since LSU was there and people had gotten kind of numb to, oh, it's Clemson and Alabama again, or the, here comes occasionally Ohio State or here's Notre Dame getting drilled in a playoff game. It had kind of been the usual characters. Like, look, obviously Michigan has a huge alumni base and a big time brand. It also has a really recognizable head coach in Jim Harbaugh. So, you know, plenty of people, even though they're new, they may hate Jim Harbaugh and want to root against him. And that's, you know, like, honestly, that's good for TV, too, because I always used to say, like, you know, as big a Notre Dame following it as it has, it also has the component of you don't get that many people who are really rooting that hard to see Clemson lose or to see uh, or to see a Oklahoma lose. Yeah. You get Texas fans who want to see them lose Notre Dame. They have a big hate following, right? Just because people want to see them really lose, whether it's, I think my, so my question really is like, maybe my question really, I should have sort of phrased is really about Cincinnati and like, what's the calculus there to have a Cincinnati as opposed to let's say like a Notre Dame. Yeah. I think, uh, that's a tough one because the the tricky part is, you know, you have, it's such a small, such a small fan base. If you're from the state of Ohio, you know, I imagine you will be rooting for Cincinnati, but if you're in Ohio, if you're from the state of Ohio, your allegiance is almost all going to be to Ohio state. You know, it's not like a huge alumni base. It's not like a brand people know. People know a little bit about Luke Fickle because they've been pretty good for the last three years. They've been very good for the last three years. And they almost beat Georgia last year in the Sugar Bowl. So there's that. I think the job, and look, they'll do a good job at this. If it comes to that, where, where Cincinnati makes the title game, I think ESPN will, will crank up the 
the ways to get to know this program to make you want, like they will promote the heck out of it to try to get people on board to fall for that story of the David versus Goliath. They are, you know, like they'll probably drag out, you know, it'll be everything from Roly Massimino and John Pannone to look at, you know, this is Villanova against Georgetown all over again. And it's honestly, it wouldn't be because the way they've recruited and developed players, they have a bunch of NFL dudes on there. I mean, they're probably more athletic than a bunch of, than a bunch of other teams in the top 10, but it's the brand component of it. You know, it's just, there's not a lot of people, Richard, who are watching AAC football. That's the league they come from. So that, yeah, they beat Notre Dame and South Bend, but after that, people have not in large numbers been watching Cincinnati. So there's going to be an element of discovery there. And I don't think people won't tune in. I just think it's not going to have, they're going to need some help from, from ESPN or whoever, if it comes to them being in the, in the title game and them in the final four, different story. And look, I think they're totally deserving more than deserving. So um, I think it's going to be fun to have some new teams because this year, unless Alabama beats Georgia, we're not going to have Clemson for sure. We're not going to have Ohio state. We're, we're probably not going to have Alabama, right? So that's um, there's going to be a lot of new blood in this in this in this final four. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah, I mean, the really the the I guess I won't you know I'll let you go here, but like the real interesting question is if Alabama beats Georgia, is there a path for them to get to number four if everybody? Oh, if Alabama beats Georgia, they're going. I mean. Oh yeah, well you know that's right. They that's I take that. They back. didn't lose to Auburn. They didn't lose to Auburn. They that's didn't right. lose they didn't to Florida. lose to Auburn. They so they're yeah, yeah, they're, they're they're set. I get the I my I'm sorry. I meant um you know what? It's really set, right? Cuz like since you just said Cincinnati beat Notre Dame this year, right? They did. They beat them in South Bend by 11 points. Now here's where it's a little tricky is you know, if Michigan wins and they in the Big Ten title game, we think they're going. If Cincinnati wins out, we think they're going. Georgia, even if they lose, we think they're going. But let's say Georgia beats Alabama. Yeah, that, I think that was my question is if Georgia lost to Alabama, does that mean anything? And maybe it doesn't. If Georgia loses to Alabama, then you're having two SEC teams go. That that makes it crowded. You know, then the other wild card in this is the Big 12. Does Oklahoma State, which is a one-loss team, and they're going to play Baylor in the Big 12 title game, if they win, do they leapfrog Cincinnati? I don't think they will, but they could. That's interesting. Be, you'd be a, you know, you're gonna have a lot of people who follow college football then just up, you know, obviously uh, really ticked off because they're gonna once again sort of point to the thing that you know none of these teams outside of the power teams can make it. And Cincinnati did everything it had. Yeah, to Yeah, it's do. not their fault that like last year Indiana was really good and they were gonna play Indiana and they did and they beat them. But Indiana is a two and ten team. Last year they were like seven and two. It's not there. Like it's unfortunate for them that they have to not only beat a team, then they have to root that that team turns around and has a really good year. They're fortunate Notre Dame did, because then the committee already like the committee has this way. Gary Barter, the chairman, he goes on this BS show that ESPN puts on every Tuesday night, and he will say, "I have great respect for such and such," and then all of a sudden, everything else they do will completely contradict him saying, "I have great respect for it." All right, Bruce, I'm going to let you go because as, as we're talking here, Spencer Rattler of Oklahoma has just put himself in the transfer portal. So you're going to have a busy day. Yeah, exactly. this was not ex- unexpected. There's day. a ton of guys going into the portal yeah. today. <laughs> Bruce Feldman is a senior writer for The Athletic covering college football. He's a college football insider for Fox Sports. He and Stuart Mandel co-host the, the Audible podcast. Bruce, thank you for coming on on short notice and uh, continued success, man. Your success helps me at The Athletic. So, so I appreciate all your hard work. Thank you very much. It's good talking to you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Jim Miller 
and Bruce Feldman for their time today. Really appreciate uh, their insights and popping on. If you like these kind of podcasts, um, head to the Sports Media Richard Deitch page. Leave us a review. Five-star review would be nice and uh, a nice note as to why you like it. It's just, uh, it, does, uh, it has a significant meaning when it comes to sort of ratings and reviews when it comes to podcasts. The uh, last couple of podcasts we've done before this one, Rebecca Lowe of NBC Sports talking about uh, NBC retaining the Premier League coverage and what that means for Rebecca Lowe. I had a conversation with ESPN's Mike Breen and CBS Turner Sports Yes Network's Ian Eagle. That was great. Uh, Longtime friends, the two best NBA play-by-play broadcasters working today, and they had a lot of fun with each other. Before that, Pam Oliver of Fox Sports, who talked about her career and uh, um, really just remarkable work uh, by Pam for now 30-plus years. And before that, Chris Jericho of AEW, talking about reinvention, uh, one of the great wrestling performers of his era or any era. And then before that, Robert Griffin III, of ESPN. We also have obviously a lot of sports media roundtables that are floating in between those episodes as well. So hopefully something there you like. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work on this podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody at Cage 13 for the support. And thank you for listening. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Happy holidays to uh, you as we head to December. And we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.